State of the Industry podcast. This episode is brought to you by KP Movement Education, your source for health and movement education and coaching. Whether you are a health or fitness professional, a fitness consumer, or perhaps a passive bystander, KP believes that everyone deserves the right to pain-free movement. That's why their memberships and services are designed to educate, empower, and inspire you to create a culture of movement for yourself and those around you. With two membership options, you'll find education surrounding developing at-home training programs for yourself or for others, mental health and exercise, lifestyle medicine, and much, much more. Check it out at kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. That's kineticperformance.ca backslash memberships. Hey, FitFam, welcome back to the State of the Industry podcast. I am your host, Adam Youngsma. Really looking forward to introducing this next guest. He is a close friend of mine, and he's calling all the way from Australia. He is Michael Kunico. Michael is the National Fitness Manager for Fitness First Australia. In this role, he develops fitness products and programming throughout Fitness First clubs, not only in Australia, but across the world as well. He's overseen the development of thousands of personal trainers through his involvement with Fitness First induction and development programs. And he is kind of one of those stories where he started from the bottom as a PT and worked his way up through perseverance in order to get to where he is today. And he walks through what his path was like. We also talk about a four-pronged attack to personal training as we start to see reopenings and he actually provides a very optimistic outlook on this whole industry moving forward and part of that is because Australia started to reopen a little bit sooner than us here in North America and they've actually seen some really really great numbers in their clubs and I just can't wait to share this with you if you haven't yet don't forget to subscribe leave a review and we will see you on the other side. All right. Welcome, Michael Kuniko, to the State of the Industry podcast. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you, Adam. How are you, mate? I'm doing, I'm doing well. I'm doing well. Things are starting to open back up. So, you know, there's light at the end of the tunnel for us fitness yeah. folk. I know that there are going to be a few people here in and around kind of Toronto, Canada, the US, who listen to this podcast on a regular basis who may have heard of you or heard you speak before because you talk at a ton of different conferences here. But just for those who maybe don't know who you are, what you do, can you just kind of give the listeners a bit of a background? Yeah, no dramas. Um, so I'm the National Fitness Manager of Fitness First Australia. Uh, we've got about uh, 64 sites. Um, we're a commercial, um, I guess, for a better word, big box kind of facility. Um, but within that, that that suite of, of clubs, we've got a, a, a big range. We have um, one facility in the Sydney CBD, which is about 5,000 square metres. Uh, I'm not sure how that works out in feet, but I need is about 3.3 or something like that. So it's a big facility. Yeah. Uh, and then we've got some, some smaller sites. We've actually got a yoga studio as well. Um, so a couple of different variations in there. Um, I guess my 
job description or the thing that I'm responsible for is the, the fitness product. So personal training, we've got about, uh, well, pre-COVID, uh, it's a bit it's a bit unclear at the moment how, how things are going to sort of settle down in, in Australia. But pre-COVID, we had about 900 what we call franchise personal trainers, so self-employed, okay. uh, about 150 uh, employed. And we have about 1,300 um, group fitness instructors. Uh, and that's sort of, I guess that they all fall under the, um, the remit of, of the team I work with. Uh, and we also play a part in the dispersion, I guess, of our capital expenditure. Mm-hmm. Um, so where to invest, uh, what can we try to innovate in some of our clubs, uh, which clubs need refurbishments or new equipment. Uh, and we work really closely with our, our facilities team in that area as well. Okay, cool. So how did you get into, because like national you know, fitness managers, that's a big title. <laughs> So how did you actually get into that? How did you end up getting into that role? So like, just what's your path through the industry in Australia there? Yeah. Okay. So if we go all the way back to the beginning, I was a, uh, I was a failed um, professional soccer player or footballer, depending on uh, which part of the world you're listening to. Uh, And I had a, I had an okay career locally. Uh, I played in our sort of national league for for a number of years, but I quickly realised that that wasn't gonna that wasn't gonna put a Ferrari in my garage, let's say. Yeah. Um, so I, I thought I, I need to do something else. Uh, and, and actually, one of the clubs I was playing for had an education program which allowed you to do courses, which you subsidised. Uh, so I did my personal training course, started dabbling a little bit in as a lot of people have done with you know, friends, family, uh, outdoor sessions, those sorts of things. Um, and then I found my way, the industry at this point was still quite immature, I would say, in Australia. I mean, this is about 19 years ago. So, okay. um, yeah, there, there wasn't a lot of options uh, mm-hmm. in terms of, okay, I want to be a trainer. I've got my qualifications. Now what do I do? Um, so I found my way to a fitness first club and I started well, you know, essentially on the gym floor, like, like potentially some of the listeners and, and a lot of people in the industry have. Uh, and then just... Fast forward to 2020, here we are. Uh, mm-hmm. And there's been a whole range of different kind of roles. Yeah. So very club-based roles, one club, um, I guess kind of area roles where you look after six to 10 clubs, state-based roles and and, and, a, and a national role just in PT previously as well. So um, it's been a really engaging, interesting journey. Yeah, it hasn't all been highs there's definitely been some lows in there yeah we've had um generally our ownership structure has been with venture capitalist groups um and that generally means contractions and retractions in business and personnel and those sorts of things so um it it definitely hasn't been a boring ride Um, yeah yeah and it's never highlighted more so than probably in the last few months as well Um, and that's brought me to I guess where we are here and you know, meeting guys like yourself as we as we try to you know, share, share some of our experiences um, at different conferences which has been um, a really awesome part of the journey as well yeah so I just want to quickly touch on something I love the story of PT to national fitness manager like that progress through the industry and with um, you know kind of the same company all along the way right so when you're, if you could give some advice to a PT, because a lot of like, there's a lot of turnover, it's 
probably similar in Australia. There's a lot of turnover here in North America with personal trainers coming in, leaving when they don't see kind of, I, I guess, like a light or a career at the end of the tunnel. They just see a job like a kind of a, a stopgap between one thing that they're doing to the other. Um, or a way to make kind of some side money. So what kind of advice before I move on, what kind of advice would you give a PT who maybe is looking to get into um, more of a managerial role and how to go about doing something like that? Yeah. Yeah. It's um, the question doesn't come up that often to be honest, because uh, I'm not sure what it's like in North America, but the path for a trainer for, um, you know, quote unquote success typically is become a bigger version of a trainer, i.e., open the studio, open your own facility, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that path, but the the path to employment roles or bigger roles within a company is some, somewhat can be frowned upon at times, which um, it, I find a little bit disappointing. The, the number one reason why, there's two reasons why I got into my original, what we call in Australia, the personal training manager role of one of our clubs. Two reasons. One of them was I thought I could do a better job than the guy who was in the role. <laughs> um, and, and that's a whole not, that's a story for a whole nother day. Yeah. Uh, and the, the, the second reason was, you know, like I'm working with my clientele here. Things are going okay. I was playing a little bit of soccer still at that time, semi-professionally. Um, but I felt like I was limited to the group of people I saw as the trainer. Uh, and I saw trainers around me and I'm thinking, and look, trust me, by no means was I an expert. This is two or three years into my, um, uh, my journey, I guess. Yeah. Uh, but I thought, you know what, maybe I, I think I could help some of these guys. I think I could provide some support and it would be coming from the right place. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I wasn't doing it for any other reason other than it looked like an interesting role and, and I think I can help. Yeah. The, the, I guess to come back to the, the original question there, it, it, I just had a moment of pause when you were, when you were developing that question. And, and I had a thought around, you know, whenever I interview someone or I come across someone who's, who's forging their path through the industry, they talk about one of the things that comes up a lot is their passion for the industry. Yeah. Um, and I'm like, okay, like, I don't really know what that means. I feel like that's just a very generic statement because I don't know if any, no one's really super passionate about the thing they end up doing right at the start. I shouldn't say always, but like when you start doing something like the guy who's out there, who's concreting, was he super passionate about that from day one or did he just start with it? And there's nothing wrong with concreting and he got quite good at it. And then he developed a bit of a passion for, you know, laying the perfect uh, piece of concrete or the perfect driveway or whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and then as you were asking that question, I was, I was thinking back to my time right at the start. And, and then we can all relate to this from an exercise perspective. I remember when I started as a personal trainer, this is embarrassing. <laughs> uh, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do a chin up. I could not do one full body weight chin up. Now, maybe I had extra body fat. Maybe I just wasn't strong enough at the time. Whatever. But it was like, wait, how, can, how can I not be able to do a chin-up? So what do you do? It's not like at that point, I'm like, I'm super passionate about chin-ups. Yeah. It was more, there's something that I want to accomplish and I need to, I need to stick with this for a period of time. 
And we all do that in terms of exercise. If we want to get better at something, it's not that you're necessarily super passionate about deadlifting from day one because you're no good at it, Mm -hmm. but you stick with it and you get better at it and you build competency and then that builds confidence. And now all of a sudden you're like, yeah, I really enjoy this movement or this, this piece of work that I'm doing. Um, So I guess to, in a roundabout way, it, I feel like persistence comes before passion yeah. um, and, and you're going to have the ups and the downs and the tough times. And you know, as we said, never more so than, than right now, yeah. um, but you, you've got to stick, you've got to stick, you know, there's, there's no, uh, there's no replacement for that. No level of passion will, uh, will overcome not sticking. Yeah. If that makes sense. Yeah. No, I, I love that. Um, when we work with young PTs, a lot of the time when we ask what their why is, it's always, um, I have a passion for helping people, right? It's like, well, okay, what what happens when one of your clients complains and says you aren't helping them, right? Like, you know, what what happens if you fail at that with a specific Mm. client? Because as you said, you're going to have ups and downs. You're going to have clients who you really succeed with, who respond really well to your type of training, the program that you've designed, and then you're going to have clients who maybe have other issues underlying what's going on, specifically weight loss, right? Where you've got, Mm. you know, everything from thyroid issues to toxicity in the body that needs to be dealt with. It might be poor nutrition that you just, you can't get them to adhere to. Like, there's a lot of things that can happen there, right? So, And and, and I think with that as well, Adam, every trainer who's been in the game long enough, you get to a point where you have to accept that the, the importance and the, the level of intensity that you may take to training and your health and exercise, you just can't replicate that. You can't give that to other people. I mean, it's, yeah. it doesn't hurt, of course, but you almost have to come to a realization and accept the fact that there's going to be some clients who see you and they may not move forward ever. Yeah. And we're talking years. And when I say move forward, aesthetic goals, those sorts of things, because you have to realize that as frustrating as that is going to be, uh, is it better they come and see you for that 45 minute once a week and not be stuck on the couch? And that could be a highlight for them. Yeah. And maybe their aesthetic goals aren't progressing the way you would want them to be. But how do you know that 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 45 minutes isn't literally the highlight of the weekend and makes them so happy? And isn't mm-hmm. that just as important as how, how it sort of is perceived on the outside? And, and that can be hard as a trainer because you feel like they're not working with you and you're not progressing forward. You maybe yeah. think that other trainers see that and they're like, well, what are you doing with this client? Yeah. Um, or even worse, yeah, other clients see you. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. And, and that's that's a whole that's your ego getting in the way to some degree as well, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and I think we'll get to ego a little bit later because I think there's some uh, there's some challenges there in our industry as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a there's a lot of stuff with it when it comes to trainers' perception of the industry when they're first starting out, when they're first coming in, what they expect. You know, you you said it well every trainer comes in with this passion and love for fitness and exercise and movement. And they expect that all the clients they see either that they will have that or that they can instill that in the client that they have. And rarely is 
is that the case to the extent that the trainer is expecting when they first start out? Right. So yeah, totally, totally agree. That, that was really well put. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's just talk a little bit about the, the industry a little bit and, you know, this whole pandemic situation shut things down in Australia, much as it shut things down here in Canada and the US. What do you see? And this is going to be a very loaded question. But what do you see as kind of the, the state of the industry? Is there is are we going to get back to normal with air quotes? Are we going to get back to yeah. that point? Yeah, yeah it's a uh... I'm not sure how much time we've got. That's a, yeah. and what is normal, but yeah, I'm going to have a, I'll have a crack at, um, at opening a discussion with you on this one because uh, it's really interesting. Uh, and look, the business I work for here, uh, fortunately we get access to a lot of data um, and, and I feel like data is important and most people in the fitness industry aren't that in, like pure fitness people. A lot of them aren't really interested in the detail in data my personality lends itself to show me the data, show me the information. And so uh, just as recently as last night, I was reviewing the swipe volume in our facilities and our facilities are big facilities. So, you know, you might need to scale this uh, depending on the sort of business you run, but yeah. the swipe data for our business year on year for the corresponding day, because um, we made the mistake early of looking at the corresponding date. But then of course, that date may be a Sunday, whereas now it might be a Tuesday, so that doesn't really work. Mm -hmm. The corresponding day, um, it was quite interesting. So our suburban clubs and our clubs on the fringes of our major cities, they're all progressing forward in terms of visitation. So uh, people are, are coming back um, more every week. And depending on which state you are in Australia, we're about three weeks back in. Um, and so that's really that's really positive. That's really good to see. Mm -hmm. uh, and some of our clubs are actually, there's a couple of clubs where the swipe volume is actually more than it was the same day last year. So there's some really positive signs there and that's literally three weeks in. Yeah. There are some clubs, particularly in our CBD regions, which are still a third of the business of what we, we would expect. Um, and, and I think what we, used to expect in those clubs won't won't be back for some time now mm -hmm. because these clubs are hubs and they're right in the heart of our uh, our major cbds particularly in sydney uh, and melbourne um, the recovery for people traveling into those areas in our country is going to be some time there's no doubt about it um, so normal in those facilities i think is going to take a little bit longer it feels like in the facilities and the spots around us, which are a little bit more, again, it can be a little bit demographic specific. So if there's a, an older population in a certain area, they seem to be taking their time a little bit to come back. Mm -hmm. But then the younger generation seem to be a, a lot quicker to return to, to the facilities. Yeah. Uh, and that I noted that in particularly that, that facility I mentioned that is getting more swipes than it was the year before. The area around that club is quite young, um, quite sort of professional, but 25 to 40, that sort of age group. You don't get a lot of 60, 70 year olds in those facilities. Yeah. Um, so it's, it's been interesting to see the flow of members coming back into the facilities. Uh, I was in a facility this morning before we got on this call. Um, 
suburban location, relatively busy. It's at about 70, 80%. It's quite nice to see members being very um, conscious of cleaning. You know, I think in commercial health clubs, I think we all used to say you've got to bring in a towel, you've got to clean over your equipment. Yeah. Eh, 50% of people would do it, 50% not. I would say it's like 95.5 now. So there's still mm. some people, you know, who are just sort of disregarding things. But uh, that's been a really positive change, people's respect for the gym and the facility. Yeah. Um, and even just the love to come back, like through our social networks, I was sort of keeping an eye on what, what people were saying. And I, I truly hope that there's, uh, yeah, like an appreciation for where people go to work out. And that's regardless of what kind of facility you're running. I find that if it's a smaller facility and maybe the trainer or the manager or the owner, you see them regularly, that's a different relationship to the big commercial health club mm-hmm. that gets a couple of thousand swipes in a day. Um, but it felt like there was this swelling of appreciation for when can I get back to my gym? Yeah. Um, it'll, it'll be interesting to see how long that lasts for. Um, mm-hmm. But so far, it's been really nice to see members come back into facilities and be be really thankful for for the opportunity to exercise. Yeah. Um, I guess in terms of what we've learned, and if I think now, if I drill this down now, maybe to a trainer level, separate to um, operating a facility or, or a yeah. group of facilities, it felt like there was a realization that as a, as a fitness professional, you almost need to have a, uh, it's almost like an, you're like if you're going to invest in things, if you're an investor, you know, the number one rule in investing, don't put all your eggs in one basket. Yeah. And it, it, it's felt like the, the smart trainers, some of them were ahead of the curve. Uh, and it felt like the, the ones that were onto this quite quickly seemed to do quite well through the COVID process. Uh, and, and now they've got this, this sort of three pronged attack, actually, maybe even four. You've got, look, you're always going to have uh, the demand for face to face training. Yeah. You know, there's, I've seen different articles, you know, is personal training dead and all these sorts of things. Uh, I think that's a load of you know, BS. But, yeah. But there's always, there's always going to be demand for face. And that demand is going to be split, I think. And I think one of the things that's come out of COVID. There's always going to be demand for one-on-one. There's going to be a, a set of people who want your undivided attention and they're prepared to pay for it. And that's cool. And that's, that's, been, that's been our bread and butter for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the shift towards, and it's been, it's been ongoing for a while, the shift towards smaller group training, semi-private, I think COVID has given everyone an excuse to look at that. Yeah. to keep the cost down, um, to create communities outside of clubs because we couldn't get in. Um, so I think that's, that, that's always going to be there as well. And, and the smart trainers, you know, everyone's favourite word for 2020, have pivoted in that direction to, yeah. to offer something in that space. So that's great. Face-to-face, one-on-one, small groups and in private. You've then obviously got... Um, you know, and some of us, I attended a few just to see how it works. Zoom classes, um, you know, online classes. We delivered those as a brand to keep engaged with uh, our members as best we could. Mm-hmm. That feels like it's, it's sort of here to stay, definitely in the short to medium term. And I think it'll be really interesting to see where that evolves to. Uh, and then obviously, tra- some trainers were ahead of this curve and, and there's been people that have been on this bandwagon for some time, but then you're, you're, you're sort of online clientele. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and it feels like COVID has, has pushed some of the smart trainers to, to go across, to, to invest their, their business energy in different areas, which I think has been a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I talked to a manager here in Toronto, actually, this is well before this whole pandemic started because we were just chatting about education. And one of the things that we discussed is trainers, when you get to the top of training, whether it be in a big box gym with, you know, you've kind of hit the max number of clientele you can work with, you've maxed out hours, pay, all those types of things, you're still selling, but you still want more. Basically, it's like, you know, the smart trainers are expanding out and able to do multiple things with the same client. So they're able to have one client who, you know, comes in to see them one on one a couple times a week, they've got a program that they do on their own twice a week, they come and maybe do, a, you know, a small class, you know, for a bit of community once a week or once every other week. And then they also maybe do, you know, um, we've got like fascial stretch therapy, you know, it could be massage therapy, something like that. And so that one client is now kind of tiptoeing, as you said, into, you know, three or four different pools and that's able or allowing, that's allowing that, that trainer to kind of multitask in that and, and pull in a few more different types of clients um, right. Maximize revenue in that. So, yeah. Yeah. Um, yes. Our business, which is quite large, we've got hundreds of thousands of members. Um, and, and you know, we're not alone in this, but uh, a metric that some large businesses will look at is like a spend per member. Um, because as gaining new members becomes ever more challenging, do you have offers that are engaging for members to spend money in other areas above and beyond just membership? You know, for example, um, some of the studio operators do this really well. Um, Barry's SoulCycle, um, they sell gear. And so that means not only am I spending money on my classes, but I'm actually purchasing, uh, you know, it could be nutrition or plans, or whatever it might be. So yeah, you're gaining more revenue, but you don't necessarily need to get more clients or more yeah. members. Um, and there's nothing wrong with that. I don't think we should, it's not, there's no, there's not, there's nothing wrong with having products and services that fill the needs and demands of, of our customers. Yeah. Uh, and, and it feels like, yeah, that the way you've articulated it there around having the different pools, uh, it feels like trainers have, have come to that realization and thought, yeah, okay, I need to, I need to do things a little bit differently. doesn't mean I need to throw out, one-on-one -on -one personal training forever. Because um, as I said, yeah. I think there's still a, a, a market for that and there's people that want it. Uh, it just not might, that might not be 95% of your business moving forward. Yeah, and I'm not sure exactly on how it works with fitness first between your freelance trainers and the trainers who are under contract, um, you know, who actually work for the clubs. Uh, I know here there are fewer freelance trainers in the big clubs. They're more so employees. And so there are actually a, a few restrictions with regards to what they can do outside, right? Like I can't get a client from the gym, pull them or get money from them personally. It almost has to go through the club in that sense. So there are like, 
there are, I guess, there's some red tape that kind of has to be worked around in those scenarios. Um, but definitely as a freelance trainer, like that's, that's the best thing, right? Um, you guys have yeah. more freelance trainers than you have employed trainers, right? So Yeah, yeah. And look, um, uh, like I said, we have about 900 freelance trainers or contracted trainers. Um, if, if you've got people listening to this that are in that situation who maybe work within a facility and have you know, red tape or, or some kind of restrictions, which we do. So our agreements, their legal agreements, they're pretty tight and binding on purpose. But we also have clauses within our agreement, which states if you want to train people outdoors, you need to get our permission. And if you've got a customer of ours who was originally our member, but now mm -hmm. they're your client and you want to train them, it would be very rare for us to say, no, you can't do that. One, it's really hard for us to actually say that and, and police. Yeah. But two, it's much better for us to have a good relationship than to be banging heads. Mm -hmm. um, unfortunately, the contractor, uh, sort of master contractor relationship can create friction. Um, but I'll tell you what, you know, I've been in this model for almost 20 years. It's, it's a much better relationship when you try to work together as opposed to let me try to do this little sneaky thing yeah. under the table. Yeah. I think a lot of trainers when they first start it are, are scared to go and ask. They're like, I don't think I'm allowed to do this. Like whether they've read the contract or not, I don't know, but they're, they're worried to go to the club to, you know, the managers and be like, Hey, can I do this? Right. Is there a way? And, and I know um, a few of the different, um, gym brands here in Canada have definitely expanded the offerings that they have. And one of the big things they have is, um, you know, one of them is actually looking at doing like online training as part of the, what they offer. Um, and so allowing PTs to have multiple avenues within the club itself, which I think is going to be very beneficial for them, right? So they have clients yeah. coming in or past members, they can reach out to them and, and maybe get some more revenue from that. So, yeah. Yeah. And we've looked at a few of those things. Um, our, uh, unfortunately, a business of our size, um, making a going in that direction takes some time, particularly from an IT support setup. Yeah. Um, the other thing in Australia is we have really favorable employee, um, laws and regulations for the employee yeah um which is which is the main reason why we have the model we have because to pay employees for delivering the volume of sessions that we would have uh, as as demand the the and, and i've seen it in good life in canada um the the administration process around that and also the cost to the business would be uh, would be pretty significant. Yeah. And the other thing with a, an employee model versus our model, sort of going on a bit of a tangent, but um, the model we run has unlimited earning potential. So mm. if a trainer wants to work 100 hours a week, we don't recommend it, uh, but their rental obligation to us is flat. So it's not like a sliding scale where the more you earn, the more we take. You just yeah. pay us your rent every week or fortnight uh, and you take home whatever you want to take home. Um, and it's interesting because some people will say that and look at that and go, well, yeah, that, that amount of rent's quite expensive. And I'm like, well, you could go and be an employee and the business could charge you out at 100 and you could take home 35. So that yeah. means 
you're giving up 65% of that revenue. I would say that's pretty expensive. Yeah. Uh, and so it just, it just depends on how you look at it, right? <laughs> yeah, I love, I love the freelance training model. Um, when I was over at Filex three years ago now, um, I think that's actually where, no, we met before that. We met in Toronto just before that. We met in August, I think the year before, just very briefly. Um, but when I was over, I went to a few different fitness first clubs and I worked out with one of the freelance trainers and I chatted with him about the rental agreements and like how all that works out. And he loved it. And he's like, it actually helps the industry kind of separate specifically within fitness first is separates those who just want to come in for maybe a quick buck versus those who are there to be professional personal trainers, right? Cause you can get that if in like an employee based situation, cause you can choose to work, you know, 20 hours and you make whatever money and you don't need a lot. Maybe you live with your parents and your food's yeah. paid for and all that. But there, if you're paying, I don't know what the rental fee is, but if you're paying a specific rental fee, you're like, I have to make this much just to cover my rent. And then I want to make this much. I got to work very hard. I got to bring people in. So it benefits, I feel both mm -hmm. sides in being able to have a model like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, so. and to be look brutally honest, it, it doesn't benefit. Like it's not a good model for someone who's, they're sort of 50, 50 mm -hmm. in their approach to the industry, to what they're doing. They could probably get by for a little bit. Like you said, maybe they live at home. It benefits the trainer. Who's like, I want this to be my career. And I want to earn a very good living so I can pay for, you know, take care of my family. I want to have children. I want to have the mortgage, whatever it might be. Yeah. Uh, and we have trainers like that who, who earn a significant amount of money. Don't get me wrong. They, they work hard. Mm -hmm. Um, because if you're delivering 40 sessions a week in a fitness first club and charging a hundred dollars an hour, which is kind of reasonable or thereabout, um, that's $4,000 a week. That's over 200 grand a year. Um, yeah. and that trainer's rental commitment to us will probably be about 20 grand. Yeah. So it's, it's just a perspective. Um, you know, and we've had, I can think of two very experienced trainers who started at fitness first, who then branched out to open facilities under uh, with no, they didn't leave under any cloud or issue. Like they left with, thank you for being a part of our business. You know, we, we always welcome you back. Yep. Um, and one of them doesn't operate that business anymore because a very smart guy just couldn't make, couldn't make it work. Mm -hmm. um, and another one has, um, he's been gone for a very long time. He's probably one of the most well-known guys down in the country, but he supplements his fitness facility with education. Uh, mm. not, not too dissimilar to, to what you do, Adam. Yeah. Um, so it's not as simple as, okay, I'm just going to go out and open a studio. Um, because all of a sudden now you're everything. You're the cleaner. Yeah. You're the, um, yeah, you got to pay all the bills. You've got to fix the broken equipment. Yeah. Um, and I think sometimes uh, some trainers in our model, I think, I think to be fair to them, I think they sometimes take that for granted because, you know, replacing a belt on a treadmill or a cable on a dual adjustable, one, it's not easy, and two, it's damn expensive. Yeah. I used to, before I went away to university, I worked at a fitness facility, and I can't remember what my actual title was, but I gave myself the title of head of maintenance because <laughs> I basically cleaned and fixed everything. Um, unless there was a broken cable that needed to be fixed on a, on a weight machine or a tread that actually needed to be replaced. But 
Uh, like I oiled everything. I made sure everything was spotless. You know, I put together new equipment when it came in. I did all of that kind of stuff. So I know what it takes just to do that job. And this wasn't a, you know, this was a reasonably sized gym, but it wasn't massive. Uh, it was like privately owned, but the amount of work that I put, like I was 40 hours every week, couple nights a week cleaning things that I couldn't clean during the day because it wasn't a 24 hour club yeah. and add on the business side of things, right? Like the actual getting people in the door, selling, keeping, you know, it's, it's, it's a lot of work. And I think as you've mentioned that, that freelance model of, of basically owning your own business without a few of the less desirable jobs, I mm. think is really, really beneficial getting into the industry um, because people can get maybe the false idea when they go and, you know, start at um, a gym as an employee that this is all easy. Like I got client, I can get clients wherever I want. Right. But all the clients you got were in the gym from us. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, so how's yeah. your marketing? How's this? So, yeah. Um, it's, so, um, so good. No, I was just going to say, and, the, the, the group of employed trainers that we have in our, our organization, that's basically a graduate program. The idea is you start as an employee in our mm. business and you do that for three to six months. You get an understanding for how our business works, how, how we operate, how the culture is in that specific club. Um, pardon me. And then the idea is that you graduate into the contractor model. Mm. Nice. So you mentioned something at the very beginning, and I think I had a question up here somewhere, but you were talking about one of the things that you do is kind of looking at um, new equipment trends, kind of following the industry and, and really for a big box gym, like I know it's a bit slower of a process because there's a lot more loopholes to jump through than it is for a smaller, um, you know, individual studio but you always have to be kind of at the forefront of the industry, know what's kind of coming, what's, what's going to be the next big thing. How do you, how do you determine that? Like as the, the national fitness manager, how do you figure out what the next big thing is going to be before it's a big thing? Yeah. Yeah. Um, good question. It, one that's obvious is, um, getting outside your area country and then i would even say industry um so getting the opportunity uh you know i think you and i've been fortunate to spend some time in, in different parts of the world at, at conferences <clears throat> and i don't take I, I i try not to take that for granted and what i mean by that is it's great to go and hear from other presenters on what they're doing and how they're operating and what's happening in their part of the world Mm -hmm. uh, and then if the conference does happen to have, uh, you know, Ursa, for example, is, is pretty obvious that then there's the trade show, which has, yeah, the massive halls with the equipment and all those sorts of things. So yeah. it's, um, and, and, and so you go into that area and, and it's, you've got to be somewhat disciplined because it can be a little bit, okay, I've got to walk through the massive halls and get harassed by uh, you know, the person trying to sell me a protein supplement or something. Yeah. But you, you have to sort of dig in and be disciplined and go, okay, wh what am I seeing here? What's the, um, is there an underlying new thing that I haven't come across? Or um, 
you know, what am I seeing that was different to last year? And, and there is a level of discipline that you, you need to take into that. So, um, you know, we've made decisions on some equipment purchases from conferences. Um, on uh, a good example is, uh, uh, this is probably, this is probably the first Ursa I ever went to, it was about maybe 2012, 2013. Um, I trained at a couple of really good strength training facilities in Sydney. Um, and I'd come across the, say the bench press that has like a swing arm. And so it just allows you to pull the rack towards you, you unrack the bar and then the swing arm drops. Um, and at the time that facility was full of Atlanta ski and Atlanta ski is, you know, it's the Ferrari or the Bentley of, of strength training equipment. Yep. And it's too exp it was too expensive for us to purchase in terms of we didn't have a commercial agreement with them and he couldn't there was no supplier anyway fast forward to Ursa and um, Matrix had actually built a their their versions of fixed Olympic uh, presses with the swing arm option so that's on the decline incline flat and even the shoulder press and so we connected with them and then we made the call as that was going to be part of our our strength. I guess our strength training purchases moving forward and literally to this day, we still purchase that piece of equipment nice. and we have a commercial relationship with them, which, which helps. Yeah. Um, we noticed the same thing. Uh, and, you know, I think some people would say, Oh, the trends start you know, in the U S or North America. And then who knows where the trend really starts, but you tend to get a highlight at a conference. Mm -hmm. And so around the same time, probably 2013, 2014, we noticed there were a number of suppliers who were offering um, not only bar training programs, so group fitness programs, but but movable bar pieces of equipment and that you could sort of um, lock into the floor or against the wall and those sorts of things. And bar wasn't really a huge thing in Australia at that point in time. Um, so we found a local supplier, uh, both in terms of um, instructor training, program development, um, yeah, fixing a bar to wall is actually super easy, as I'm sure everyone can imagine. And yeah. so we we started running a bar program, and we're still running that today. Um, so I guess to come back to the the original question, it's you, you need to get out of your own bubble, whether that's your brand or your area or your country. And yes, there's an investment that's involved in that potentially. Uh, and I say investment because it's not a spend. There's there's a return on that investment. I feel. Mm -hmm. um, and then also looking looking outside the industry. Um, and if we think about, you know, if we think about, say, the, uh, the, I think it's the ACSM top 20 trends that comes out every year, I think wearable technologies has been sort of number one for the last few years. Yeah. Uh, and I think, I think we all agree it's having an impact. Yeah, maybe next year actually it'll be like Zoom technology or something like what mm -hmm. we're on, um, just based on what's been happening. But... Um, saying wearable technology is the new trend is great, but like, what does that actually mean for me as the trainer or the, yeah. uh, the facility operator? Like what, what do I do with that? Mm -hmm. Am I going to use that to better engage my clients or my customers? Um, because I think there's, I, I really think there's something in this, this wearable tech. And the reason why I think there's something in say wearable tech is, 
that we've already spoken about it one-on-one private group training like those sorts of things are uh, they're going to be with us like they're always going to be around yeah um, and actually this was part of my 2020 ursa presentation mm. that i ended up actually doing virtually so um um, there was some content that, that I'll, I'll bring up that I think is really nice. relevant. Um, so what do we do with this wearable tech? Well, unless anyone's been sort of living under a, a rock, your wearable tech these days can now give you information from other people. Mm-hmm. You know, So I have an Apple Watch and I've had Apple Watches almost, you know, I'm a bit of an Apple kind of guy. And um, and so we, you and I can share our data through our Apple Watch, which I mean, that's just unheard of, right? Like mm-hmm. 10 years ago, that not even in the realms of possibility. So now I can actually now challenge you to, um, and, and because it's watch-based, watch it's generally going to be energy expenditure or distance covered. It has to be a metric that we can measure fairly. Yeah. Um, but but I, can, I can physically challenge you, uh, which is kind of cool, right? Yeah. And then I can also see your ring data. I'm not trying to sell Apple Watches, by the way. <laughs> but if you were my client, what is the one of the biggest challenges we've got? We've sort of already talked about it. You come in for your 45-minute session, but then you go out to the world. And I don't know what the hell is going on. Yeah. Now, I can actually see your level of movement when you're not with me. Mm. Are you closing your movement ring? How many steps are you getting in? Like... We know that step count isn't the be all to end all, but I can tell you now, if you're doing 12,000 steps and you were doing 7,000 a month ago, you're now expending more energy. And if your goals are aesthetics and you want fat loss, that's probably going to be a step in the right direction. Um, And and I think this level of data is going to exponentially explode. So I can see a day in the not too distant future where I'm the PT, I wake up, I log into whatever the hell the portal is that isn't invented yet and i've got my 30 clients and i can see how much sleep they received last night Mm. i can see their resting heart rate upon waking and i can see that johnny's resting heart rate's elevated therefore his program today and his workout i might need to pull back a little bit he might need to go at a lower intensity um i can notice that mary didn't quite get her step step targeting yesterday and I can give her a little nudge and send her a message and see if she can make that up today. I just think this, this level of interaction with data is going to explode. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and with that, you could argue artificial intelligence is going to be able to do some of this communication and it will, you know, Apple watches will already give you a nudge if you're close to closing one of your rings, for example, but, a human has to bring that to life or can relate that to where you started from six months ago and how far you've progressed. So I don't think tech is going to be something that we necessarily need to be worried about unless we're not prepared to embrace it and, and to work with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can see this day and I don't think it's that far where there's like a morning dashboard and I'm checking in on everyone. I'm seeing what's happened yesterday uh, and I'm, I'm giving people nudges because I'm not seeing everyone today. We know that. Yeah. Uh, and those that I am, I'm even checking, like I said, maybe their sleep quantity, uh, resting heart rate, heart rate variability data. Um, yeah. I, I think that's going to be super relevant. And my, so my underlying point around that topic was if you're, if, if you're only going to do one-on-one or face, like if that's going to, I just don't know if that's going to be 
a rich enough overall experience in the next five to 10 years. I think there's going to need, you need to be, there needs to be more than just that. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. The, the idea, and I like how you said that uh, the platform that hasn't been created yet. So whoever is listening, who has the ability to code an app or, you know, some software like that, get on it and you'll make uh, bajillions yeah. of dollars. Yeah. I, I like, I like the idea of like tracking sleep, um, tracking heart rate variability, because people right now, they can do that on their own, but having the ability to connect devices of, you know, your clients into one, one area would be kind of what needs to happen in order for that to really work out. Because again, I think of like as a trainer, whether you're doing online training, whether you're doing kind of hybrid training, which is like the mix of both, or whether you're doing just purely one-on-one, -on -one, as you said, you're still not seeing them every single day. You're not with them every hour. And I always ask trainers, I'm like, okay, so you see your client three hours a week. There's a lot of hours in a week. Like that's far more time without you than with you. So what are you doing to, you know, motivate them to, you know, um, make sure that they're keeping up with nutrition that they're keeping up with, as you said, sleep, how are you tracking stress levels in them? Right. So heart rate variability and, you know, that's a big thing. Like, so I know for myself with clients, I, I have a scale where I ask them, you know, how's your sleep, you know, and every week I go through this every day, I have kind of a shorter checklist. That's just a quick couple of questions. Um, you know, stress level, all those types of things just to find out where they're at. And I might have to adapt my my training kind of in response to that. But if I had the ability to just go on my computer the like the morning of before I've seen any clients and see, you know, oh, that person only had actually like three hours of like sleep. They're in bed for eight hours, but they only slept, you know, in, with some deep sleep, some recovery sleep. So I might have to dial back a bit um, because that recovery oh. to tearing apart of muscle fiber and yeah. high intensity, yeah. you know, metabolic stress. That's, there's a big give and take there. Oh, absolutely. And look, there's a couple of points I want to, I want to uh, highlight there as well. So that, that, that daily readiness that you spoke about the conversation or the questionnaire, which some trainers do, which is brilliant. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's going to go to a whole nother level. Right. Yeah. And I remember teaching personal training induction at our organization 12, 15 years ago. And it was like, you know, a confirmation SMS before the day before and the follow-up SMS, like that was all like quite high tech back then, like yeah. this magical confirmation SMS prior to the session. Um, and it, it, it's just, it's not enough. It's like, okay, how do we get more engaged and immersed into that, uh, into that client's health and well-being? Yeah. Um, and, and as I said, I, I just think it's, it, the experience is going to be so much richer as we get access to more data, as long as you're pre prepared to embrace it and you know you know how to engage with it, um, yeah. you, you know you don't want to be left behind with technology in the fitness industry because it's it's moving rapidly. Yeah. So, with that, um, so the short short story. I'm I'm working um, at a college right now. I won't name the college, but I'm right now working on moving because they see they see obviously education much in the same way as we see kind of the fitness industry, right? There's, it's been shown that there's some flaws in their model and they've got a shift. And so there's a more, there already was a push to more kind of hybrid and online training courses, but now they're like, okay, we have to get this online before September. 
And so I'm working right now with a few different people to put a course online. And I, I noticed that I, and, and I'm reasonably tech savvy. I watch a lot of YouTube videos to try to figure out the things that I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I can figure out the basics. The amount of times I have had conversations with some of the other professors about how do I do this? How do I do this? How do I do this? And to me, it's just intuitive when it comes to the technology side, whereas to them, it's not as intuitive. So ensuring that we, we maintain some sort of equality or equity within the fitness industry and not just leave, you know, trainers who are, and I don't want anybody to take offense to this, but <laughs> trainers who maybe aren't as tech savvy, who are, you know, 40, 50, 60, you know, who are still trainers at that age, those ages, right. Who maybe don't have a lot of experience with computers, with apps, all that kind of stuff. Um, how do you ensure that they don't get kind of left behind when this all does? Cause I agree with you that this is going to become kind of the wave of the future is having a lot of tech because I see it in clubs already. So how do we ensure we don't leave them behind? Look, uh, I think there's going to be an element that, that will get left behind. And I've been around long enough to know that there's some people that don't want to change. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's not to say that we don't want them to come on the journey, but like anything, like a client who has to come on the journey, there you have to meet me at least somewhere near the middle. Uh, and if you're not prepared to do that, then that that will be your loss somewhat. Mm -hmm. um, and it doesn't need, mean you need to be a, be able to code and you know write you know, fancy programming or anything like that. But um, yeah, literally having a watch that tells me what you did yesterday. I actually don't think you need to be that tech savvy to understand that. Mm -hmm. Put your watch on, let it track your movement, engage with Mrs. Jones, who you're seeing tomorrow. And before you start your session, see what she did yesterday. Just bringing that to life, acknowledging the fact that she got her step goal or great work on attending the spin class because I know that it was hard for you to get up in the morning. Like that's probably as, you could be as, it could be that little. Yeah. And then the next step in a year or two might be, well, actually now you do have this really cool platform that Adam created and has made a, you know, and hopefully he'll remember us along the way. Um, <laughs> maybe you're, you are engaging with this platform and maybe it's just, how did they sleep last night? You know, like I, I don't think you need to be Bill Gates or, you know, uh, anyone special in tech to have an understanding of how to engage with technology. If you've got a word, you have to be willing to embrace it though. Um, but to those that aren't, they may keep ticking over with the one-on-one, the one-on-two, that sort of, and that might be fine. There's nothing wrong with that. Mm -hmm. But I'll tell you what, the, the, the opportunities outside of that are going to be, are going to be pretty big, I believe. Yeah. And I think the idea of being a lifelong learner, right? Like having that growth mindset, and being able to, you know, kind of, you know, roll with the punches, things change. Like I always love to say that the fitness industry is like constantly changing. Like it changes all the time. If you don't look back a year from now and regret the things you did a year ago, like that year, like you're probably not in the right industry. You're not progressing with everybody else. Like I look at programming that I did a year ago. I look at the courses that I've ran and how they've changed uh, now I'm a, I'm a bit, um, 
I'm a bit of a stickler for this, but as soon as I do a course, I do an after course report and I take everybody's feedback. I don't look at it until the day after and then I go through everything. And I take all of their feedback and all of the things that I felt I didn't, I'm really hard on myself, probably more hard than most other people are on me. But I take all of that and then I change something. So I can never use the same handouts because they're probably different. Um, I do mm -hmm. different exercise. I add different things. I'm constantly doing research. And I think, as you said, like some of them, some trainers won't change, right? They, they're just, no, I'm good. Like, I'll just, I'll just keep doing what I'm doing. And, you know, eventually I think that they, it'll just kind of dwindle away. But um, yeah, the, the amount, like the opportunity when you look at tech being involved in your training session, whether it be in a big club, in a studio, or just you as like an online hybrid trainer is like, it's massive what the opportunity is there. Yeah. And I mean, and there's, there's opportunity for you to, um, as a trainer, uh, this is probably more relevant for your trainers directly, but if you're thinking it, oh, but not everyone has access to that. Well, maybe your, your first block of 12 week of training may be built into the cost of that. Whatever your brand is, Fitbit, Garmin, Apple Watch, maybe you actually have that product and you give it to your new client. Yep. And it's not to say that you need to lose money on it, but you know, that way, Mrs. Jones, who's 55, who doesn't really know about wearables, here you go, here's your Apple Watch, let me get it set up for you. Bang, you are now engaged with that person. And if there's anything I do know about tech, it's once people can wrap their head around the basics, they tend to get a little bit obsessed with it. Um, yeah, particularly something as easy as step count. Yeah. Um, yeah, seeing people, and I speak to my girlfriend about this because she's got, she's on a different brand. I like my Apple, she's on a different brand. But yeah. there'll be days where, particularly recently, we, yeah, you're working from home. Yeah, we've got a dog. Dog has only had the one walk in the morning. And then you look at your watch and you're like, man, it's four o'clock in the afternoon. I've only done 7,000 steps. Like literally five years ago, you wouldn't know that. Yeah. And so what do you do? You grab the dog and you go, okay, I'll take the dog for a walk. I need to you know, limber up a little bit, get out and stretch the, stretch the legs. Yeah. Um, that is super powerful for, for Mrs. Jones. Yeah. Um, so there's, there's ways you can integrate that into your, you know, we spoke about almost like cost per client or uh, that's a simple way to add value that is super tangible, both for you and for the client. Yeah. Uh, and maybe that's, that's a way that, a, a, I mean, imagine how cool that is. Oh, thank yeah. you. You're my new client. I've built the cost of your, your Apple watch into your training package. So here's your, your own Apple watch. What kind of band would you like? Cause I'll personalize it. Yeah. I mean, come on. Yeah. I, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned that. Cause I was thinking the exact same thing. I was like, you could just um, add that as part of the cost of your package, you know, a couple hundred bucks more, you know, whatever it is. And it gives them like a lot of clients, especially like with training, right? It's like they see this, you know, whatever the cost is, whether you're doing monthly, yearly, but they see, you know, maybe this $5,000 price tag, but nothing tangible yet, right? So I think adding oh. something tangible to that, and yeah, it's 10500 or 10300 but you get this, right? This is the starting point. This will help us be better, get the results, right? Because a lot of times that's one of the issues with selling. 
yeah, I totally agree. And you get it almost day one. It's like you get it right at the start. So mm -hmm. here's some actual tangible value that you're getting for your investment. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's a really good point. Yeah. So um, I did some sneaking around and I, I realized that you've done, um, Fitness First has done a little bit of a deal with Apple. Um, what did you guys, so what did they um, bring into the clubs for you guys? So we had a we had a strong relationship with Jay Blanick, who uh, I'm going to butcher his title, but he's um, uh, it's like a head of fitness. He, so he's the watch guy. He's not the watch guy. I shouldn't say he's the watch guy, but he's the the head fitness guy at Apple. So yeah. when they're doing a release of something that's fitness related that generally links to the watch, uh, he'll be up on stage as um you know the, the the mighty apple people have uh, in the past yeah he'll be the guy up on stage delivering that content so uh he's a and people who are familiar with idea i think he won the big award last year the lifetime achievement award and gave a really awesome speech maybe the year before um so we had a working relationship with jay from a few years before that we within our group exercise department that was where he sort of started um and our uh, group ceo uh, got in really early when Jim Kit was becoming uh, known to the to the industry, and so what's Jim Kit? Jim Kit is basically the ability to tap your watch onto the a piece of cardio equipment, and then you can grab that data, house it in your watch or your wearable, and conversely, your data can then be housed on the treadmill, stepper, climber, whatever it might be. Hmm. So you know how back in the day we've all done this. Okay, I'm going to go for a run. I'm going to try to hold on to gear life onto the treadmill and see if I can pick up my heart rate. Yeah. So with gym kit, you didn't have to do that. Okay. You could literally just tap your wearable and, and away it went. And so Apple was the first brand in the world to have a wearable that linked to gym kit. Yeah. And due to a couple of things, the foresight of our global, uh, sorry, our, our CEO, uh, and I believe in part because we had a good relationship with Jay, we actually did the global launch of gym kit uh, at Fitness First Bond Street in 2017, maybe late 2017, mm -hmm. um, which was a pretty big deal. You know, for Apple to launch a, a new piece of kit like that in Australia was was quite cool. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason we got that opportunity was we we made a, a fairly decent investment in that gym kit technology. Yeah. Um, and then and then for a period, you could also purchase watches uh, directly in club, and you could you could buy them at a discount. So. Uh, you could actually get them cheaper in a fitness first club and you put it at an Apple store, which is quite cool. Nice. So I wanted to kind of tease out a little bit more about because you're in such a prominent position in the fitness industry in Australia and you kind of see things from a, a little bit, a bit of a different viewpoint, like me as an educator uh, and a strength and conditioning coach and many of the personal trainers who are the ones listening to this podcast uh, I want to talk a little bit more about the industry as a whole, not just in Australia, but across the world, because just off kind of off air a little bit, we were talking about what is going on in England right now and everything kind of being left behind. So before we get into like specifics, what's, what's, what's the situation in England? Like what, what did you kind of see going on um, that has bothered yeah. you the most? Mm, yeah, look, so 
I've watched it from afar, of course. Uh, my sister does live in in the UK, uh, and I have a few few colleagues and friends that are that are based there as well. And and if you've kept up to date, so we're doing this call on the first of July, um, which is kind of cool. First of July, it's the start of the financial year in in Australia. Uh, we're a bit backwards. We do it in the middle of the year. Yeah. Um, but uh, the, the 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 UK fitness industry has been left behind. And what I mean by that is, if if you were to rank yeah, in Australia, we had a phrase essential services. I'm not sure if that was yep. a, a thing in North. Yep, yep. So the p- pubs are open in the UK, gyms are not. Mm-hmm. So what that is telling us is that the government sees opening pubs as a higher priority and they would say potentially less risk. And you can debate that. I mean, is a pub more risky? I mean, that's a whole other conversation. But they've essentially said that a pub is is a bigger priority to open than, than a health club. Uh, and clearly people within the fitness industry would disagree with that because we know the power of exercise and, and what it means to be able to you know, throw some weights around, move, you know, move in your local studio or facility, whatever it might be. So we were fortunate to have the, the head of the uh, Fitness Australia, which is like one of our, our main sort of governing body uh, or registering body uh, on our podcast uh, down here a few weeks ago. And it's clear that the fitness industry, like if we've learned anything, we have to more closely align with allied health professionals. We have to elevate our perception, not only in the public, but to government. Um, you know, back in the day in Australia, you could claim gym memberships as a health tax deduction, for example. You can't do it anymore. So the lobbying of gov- governments to to appreciate, I guess, and and understand the the things that we do as an industry, we have to lift that level of uh, awareness or importance. Yeah, and and that's like it's like where do you start with that? Well, it's if you come down to the very grassroots, it's actually not as not as hard as it may seem. You know, the industry, the the, the people who are overseeing industries and and government bodies you know we've got to arm them to lobby governments for whether it's tax relief or or better conditions or better benefits for our members for example that stuff may be out of reach to someone listening to this this podcast that started as a trainer six months ago but i'll tell you what's not out of your reach as a trainer it's looking professional it's conducting yourself in a professional manner both online and in face-to-face, like you alone can be your own beacon of professionalism and elevating what you do, which I would argue will elevate people around you, which if we all did that, I think the, the, the possibility of elevating the industry is, is really big. Um, mm. you know, uh, Jordan Peterson, who can be a pretty polarizing character at the best of the times, particularly in, in Canada, um, <laughs> Uh, yeah, one of, in one of his books, he says uh, one of his key things or rules, if you like, is you know, when you wake up in the morning, make your bed basically, or, or yeah. tidy your room. Sorry, and it's yeah, people would take that literally. Go, what's that? Doesn't make sense. Well, the the premise is before you go and try to reorganize the entire world, sort your own shit out, basically. Yeah, and I I think there's a really nice underlying message that before we all go start pointing fingers and and you know, shaking our finger at different things. 
have we looked at what we can do? Like what, what, what can I take responsibility for and how can I be a part of this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I really hope that that message could get out to uh, the fitness industry in, in our country. And I think even, even globally, I think it's a good message to, to consider. Yeah. I, I think uh, having been to London, <laughs> I know why they open pubs first, right? <laughs> like that's a culture there, right? Like just mm. pub culture is a thing. Um, it, they're on every single street corner. They're all over the place. Everybody after work, during work, you're at the pub, whether you are having an, a business meeting or you are just mm-hmm. hanging out with some colleagues after work. It's just a thing to do. But yeah, I think the sad thing is that shouldn't movement and exercise also be a culture as well, right? So when we look at benefits to specifically the the high risk populations, those with comorbidities, would you rather them going to a pub and, you know, not getting better and maybe getting worse or going to a fitness facility and doing something that might actually improve their overall health, right? Decrease risk. Um, And just on that too, Adam, there's, yeah, there, there can be some doom and gloom around the fitness industry right now uh, because we're seeing lower visitation, um, people nervous about you know, getting back into facilities because we, yeah, you can understand why they would be nervous. There's sweaty bodies, there's grabbing of equipment, there's, you know, share. Uh, and we've done things in our organisation to try to minimise that. Yeah. Um, uh, I've just lost my point. What was my point there? What were we talking about just before? What were we? Uh, comorbidities with regards to like the populations oh. and getting a culture of movement. Yeah. So this, this um, interestingly, so I spoke a little bit about some data early on. We're seeing in our business, our, our membership, um, our new membership acquisition this month, day by day has been higher than the previous year. Hmm. So, and interestingly, a couple of our, our real busy clubs are generally in pockets where you get travelers. So you get people from overseas and they join for three months and all those sorts of things. Mm-hmm. But there's this real opportunity because all of a sudden health, wellness, like it's really become to the forefront because all we've been talking about for the last four months is a virus. Yeah. And how would you, what's the one thing you can do to try to stave off coming as much as there is doom and gloom within the industry on a side note there's actually some real opportunity for people who are now aware that you know what my health is actually really important to me and, and it took a global uh, you know pandemic to make it a priority but i need to go and do something about it now yeah if if anybody like uh, this is obviously hoping that those people who could be at risk are actually paying attention to all of the studies and everything that's coming out or the statistics on the comorbidities and how you're at like ridiculously high risk of being hospitalized or worse, you know, you hope that they get the idea that maybe I should do something to reduce my risk. But sometimes like my wife came home the other day from the grocery store, saw um, a a couple who are, you know, probably in their mid seventies, early eighties, not wearing masks, nothing, and just walking around, touching everything, you know, uh, 
which, you know, like wearing a mask in a grocery store here where I live isn't mandatory, but you would think if you have a comorbidity, if you're at risk, you know, you, you, you know, wearing a mask helps not only protect the other people more specifically, but also mm -hmm. you, and then not touching your face and everything, but the, like nothing. Right. And mm -hmm. so some people I find just don't care about it. Just like before all this, some people just didn't care about being overweight, about being inactive, about being oh, sluggish. Yeah. So, and that's an interesting point. So if, if, if I use uh, Australian statistics and it depends on who you listen to and all those sorts of things. But generally they say that about 20% of the population is regularly involved in some sort of exercise, mm -hmm. um, you know, be the gym or they play sport, whatever it might be. I mean, that is a really small percentage. Now, 20% of, we've got about 25 million people here. So that's 5 million people. If 1% of, of 25 million go, hmm, maybe I should do something about my health and wellness because of everything that's gone on. Um, in Australia, that's 250,000 people. Yeah. In places like North America and you know, Canada, the, a 1% shift is seismic when you're talking yeah. about a population. So there is absolutely opportunity there for people who can have somehow worked their way through it stayed hungry stayed eager which i know has been really difficult for everyone and if they've come out the other side and and, and they want to go after whatever it is within their business there is going to be opportunity um, um i can see that happening in our clubs yeah and i think this is also provided a little bit of an opportunity for those who maybe hadn't experienced the fitness industry before now that you know personal trainers weren't in clubs they were online there was a whole bunch more stuff going on and it didn't just you know it wasn't just prs in the gym doing deadlifts every single day right like just non-stop videos of prs it was you know videos of try this at home workout try this try that and you may have those people who were going through saw something and just maybe saw how easy it is just to get started so kind of lower mm. the barrier of entry for that kind yeah. of thing um, and then you might see as you said you know maybe even you know there's a, a half percent or one percent shift in population um, because that those pts were doing what they were doing right like that was a great thing to see from the industry is how much got put online so quickly right yeah i think um uh, I, mean, I can't remember but i think i'm pretty sure it's one of uh, Newton's laws of motion that one, yeah, once the rock starts rolling, it's, yeah. it's easy to keep it. Going. It's actually quite hard to stop it. Right. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and you're right. There's, there's been an abundance and it's the at home workout, the workout with no equipment, you know, the five minute workout. Like if those people are now in motion mm -hmm. as an industry, I think we can, we've got access to them now, which is really cool because we might not have had them if it wasn't yeah, in a funny way that, yeah, you don't want to say there's a silver lining to COVID, but you're trying to look for positives amongst it all. Um, yeah, and that's that, that we've seen that we've seen that in our facilities in terms of new members. Yeah, and I think um, the one other thing that I thought, and so when this all first started, I, I remember having this like distinctly having this conversation with my wife, and I'm like, I don't think people are going to really realize the 
negative impact that this could have on people who currently go to the gym on things like mental health. Um, I, I had a, a student message me and basically say, you know, when I started going to the gym, I, I started to feel the sense of community. I started to feel the sense of belonging. And now that's been taken from me. I, I can't handle it right now. Like, I don't know what to do. And I, I think that was, I don't know whether I would call that an oversight. They, you know, they may have thought about that, but I feel as though the fitness industry maybe isn't always thought of in that way of helping with things like mental health and community and belonging uh, the way that it probably should be. And, oh yeah. Yeah. The, um, and it's, it's probably, I don't know if it's the right phrase, but there's, that's the long, the long uh, impact, right? Like we see the number and the, um, the deaths from COVID and the, uh, the new cases. And that's now it's tangible. I can see it. I'm going to do something about it. I'm going to change it. And I, you can understand why governments across the globe were like focused on that, but you're right. Who was keeping an eye on, okay, what is, what are the repercussions for this long-term? Mm -hmm. And you, you sort of have seen, I mean, our government, you've seen them struggle with the immediacy of stopping this now but then also we've got to try to keep the economy going. Cause if we mm -hmm. come out of this and 15% of people are unemployed, the impact on mental health and wellbeing at that point is going to be, it's going to outweigh particularly in Australia because we were quite isolated. Yeah. Um, and I think unfortunately only time will tell, you know, what, what kind of impact we do have down the track, unfortunately. Yeah. It'll be interesting if we could have a conversation, you know, even looking, um, you know, a month or two from now at kind of, what's changed seeing, you know, I, I follow the stock market a lot um, for investing purposes, uh, but also just looking at how is the fitness industry responded to this? Um, how are clubs doing? How are smaller, you know, more studio type facilities doing with all of this? Because I think it's going to be harder for some of the larger gyms because they have to, it, work so much harder to keep people apart, right? Um, there's a lot more with that, but as it's a conversation for another day, um, I, I wanna thank you a lot for coming on. Um, as always, it's always a pleasure to talk to you every single time at a conference and we're at a like, you know, I haven't seen you since Shanghai last year in August. Um, so that, was a, that I, was a good trip. Oh, that was phenomenal. You introduced me to dumplings, dumplings and, um, <laughs> <laughs> love dumplings oh so good um i brought them Steamed, home and, of course yeah i i brought them home and, and literally sat on my <laughs> on my bed in the in the hotel room just to watch some tv because i was so tired and was like i gotta finish eating these dumplings <laughs> um yeah it's not oh, yeah. not the right uh it's not pre-workout uh, food no it's pre yeah uh but thanks Appreciate a lot for coming on it was a pleasure to chat yeah, great to see you, Adam. Um, I hope everyone in, in Canada and North America, as you start to somewhat come out of your restrictions, I, I hope everyone does well and, and, and can see some of the light uh, and the industry can can push through this and, as I said, yeah, potentially even find some kind of silver lining along the way. Yeah, and I sure, I'm sure it will, uh, whether it's through technology or just through kind of safety measures and people coming together, yeah. I'm sure it will survive. Thanks a lot. Absolutely. State of the Industry Podcast.